The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall, for The Spectator. Today I am in San Francisco with environmentalist, conservationist, pro-nuclear activist, author of the books Apocalypse Never, Why Environment, Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All, and San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities, Michael Schellenberger. Thanks for having me. Michael, uh, it's a great pleasure to have the opportunity to speak pleasure to you. Thank, to you. you. Thank you for taking the yeah. time. Um, so you're a lifelong Democrat here in the U.S., uh, even running as Democrat candidate in the 2018 California gubernatorial elections uh, before leaving the party and running again this year, 2022, as an independent. Yes. How was that? It was a blast. Yeah. I had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, um, you know, it was very short as three months, but it wasn't the thing that you fear is that you have to spend all your time raising money and didn't have to do that. If I had succeeded and made it into the runoff, then I probably would have had to do more of it. But we had a great time and we were able to elevate this issue that we were so concerned about, which is the large number of mentally ill and addicted people living on the streets. Mm -hmm. But also the broader the broader challenges facing California, including on energy issues. So it was great to be able to raise those issues. We were disappointed that we didn't make it into the runoff, but it was overall a, a positive experience. Do you think you brought those issues to the fore and uh, so that they're now spoken about differently than they were before? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the book San Francisco had an impact as well just on the overall conversation around the media but i think running on that issue it would just allowed more opportunities to kind of get the message out and to challenge particular ideas that people have so for sure it did and then you know one of the most positive things is that the governor announced in the middle of the campaign that he was going to keep our last nuclear plant operating which was really important for keeping the lights on in california and it's a, a plant that we've been trying to save for six years Wow. Um, so I would love to get into your two books, Apocalypse Never and San Francisco. In fact, this morning I was at a coffee shop around the corner and uh, got stopped twice because I was carrying that book. It's a popular book, it turns out. Which one? Uh, San Francisco. Neat. Yeah, in yeah. San Francisco, you were stopped. In San Francisco. That's here in so, San Francisco. I can't tell you how happy that makes me. Yeah. And uh, I got some good feedback there. I would love to get good. into that. But before we do, uh, I wanted your expert advice um, because back in Europe, just Stop Oil and various other climate activists are destroying great pieces <clears throat> of art. So uh, firstly, Just Stop Oil through soup over Van Gogh's sunflowers at the National Gallery in London. In Potsdam, Germany, climate activists of Letzter generation through mashed potato over Monet's Le Meul. In Rome, activists for Ultima Generazione through pea soup over Van Gogh's The Sour. In Madrid, activists taped themselves to the frames of two works by Goya and graffiti of plus 1.5 degrees Celsius on the wall in between. On top of that, Just Stop Oil have blockaded the M25 uh, around London, causing a lorry crash. So yeah. I wondered if you might help me with Just Stop Oil. I've got their uh, their sort of... Uh, their ethos, their, their, their ambitions here. And I wondered if you could tell me where they're going right and where they're going wrong. So they ask, they demand that the UK government makes a statement 
that it will immediately halt all future licensing and consents for the exploration, development and production of fossil fuels in the UK because it's the very first step to ensuring our survival. Our, I, I'm assuming they mean the human race rather than just stop oil. Uh, we already have more oil and gas than we can afford to burn, they say. Let's get on with ending our reliance on fossil fuels completely by powering ahead with renewables and cutting energy demand, by insulating Britain and rethinking how we travel and by ensuring that no one is left behind and everyone's voice is heard. So are you a fan of Just Stop Oil as an environmentalist? <laughs> I'm not a fan. Let me, I'm trying, I was trying to think of uh, what do they get right. Yeah. Uh, what they get right is that eventually we will move away from fossil fuels. I'm confident of that. They were right that they did not destroy those works of art happily. Mm -hmm. The works were mostly covered in plexiglass, as you know, from having visited them as I have. Mm -hmm. But there was more serious things that occurred. People have died in these car accidents on the highways that they've blocked. That's very serious. They are disrespecting beautiful works of art for no reason that has nothing, they, they should not be dis disrespecting these works of art. They're depriving the people that could be seeing these works of art the chance to see them. Mm -hmm. And they're accusing the people who enjoy these works of art of somehow putting their own love of beautiful works of art above the planet. And that's absurd. You can love these Van Gogh paintings, the Goyas, the, mm -hmm. the Vermeer, without, uh, without it saying anything about your relationship with the planet. So it's nihilistic in the sense that it's sort of destructive for the point of being destructive. Mm -hmm. And it is also, um, I think, un um, unduly alarmist. Uh, British carbon emissions have been going down for decades. They're at their lowest level in over 100 years. Mm -hmm. The main reason for that is the transition from coal to natural gas and nuclear. Well, they're opposing natural gas, and most of them oppose nuclear, something I know from past work. So the main way that we will reduce emissions going forward is the same way that we've been doing it, which is more natural gas, more nuclear power. Mm -hmm. Renewables are very limited for reasons that most people are aware of. They don't produce power when the sun's not shining, the wind's not blowing. They must be backed up by natural gas in order to be integrated onto electrical grids. And Britain in particular, but certainly all of Europe and to a large extent the whole planet, is in the midst of a terrible energy crisis. There isn't enough natural gas, and the consequence of there not being enough natural gas. The immediate cause, of course, is, is Putin's invasion of Ukraine. But this had been going on for years. We weren't producing enough natural gas. And the consequence is that they're burning more wood, mm. more coal. And even in some countries like Poland, they're burning plastic waste mm. to stay warm. So the alternatives to natural gas are much worse than natural gas. Yeah. So those are the things that they get wrong. I do think that they're in the grip of a bad idea. I think there's some lost individuals who are acting out things in their own lives that they'd rather not deal with. Hmm. And I think it's run by somebody who's demonstrated sociopathic or even psychopathic tendencies, meaning the leader of that organization has put uh, his own desire for power above the, above the lives of the people that he works with and of the people who use the, the highways that have been hurt by these by these protests. What do you mean by the power? The power he's seeking power. How so? Yeah, this is Roger Hallam. He's co-founder of Extinction Rebellion. Um, he's power hungry. I think he's power mad. Um, there's narcissism there too, meaning a sort of empty desire for attention, mm -hmm. uh, which is there on the part of the activists. But it, he wants control. He wants power. It's unreasonable what he wants. I think you see in him and in that movement. 
very dark tendencies that we've seen in other, uh, you know, in other destructive political movements beginning mm. with the aftermath of the French Revolution all the way through the late 60s. Yeah, you talk about this in, in Apocalypse Never, this sort of religious aspect to envi environmentalism and, uh, and, and, and the alarmism around that. What, what do you think that is at its core? It, if you went deeper into that, what is it a frustration at the world? How, how is it that environmentalism has become a religion, do you think? Well, these are the two issues I think are the really important questions, which is if you have so many environmental trends going in the right direction, why do people think the world is coming to an end? If the main solutions to climate change are natural gas and nuclear, why do the people who think the world is coming to an end opposing those two technologies? Yeah. And I get to, at bottom, a psychological need that I think is not being fulfilled as people stop believing in traditional religions. So as you move away, you know, all religions serve a psychological and a sociological benefits. The psychological benefits is that it gives life purpose and meaning. If you follow these rules, you'll get into heaven yeah. or you'll be reincarnated at some higher level. There's some sort of sense in which my behavior matters for reasons beyond my own life. I have a transcendent moral purpose. Hmm. When that goes away, uh, it's anxiety provoking. At the same time, you have with industrial capitalism, just a huge number of choices. My grandfather, for example, who was a farmer in Indiana, was a devout Christian. He just didn't have very many choices. He knew he was going to grow up and be a farmer. He knew he had to follow the Ten Commandments. If he followed the Ten Commandments, he can get to heaven. It's a much simpler life than mm -hmm. the life that I've had, that we have, that our kids have, where you have to decide what's my sex. You know, where do I want to live? What do I want to do for a career? Who should I want to be in a relationship with? It's anxiety provoking. People are looking for rules. They're looking for some guidance. And people who struggle the most with that end up gravitating towards, you know, what what are basically cults, mm -hmm. what are basically really dogmatic and fanatical religions of which apocalyptic environmentalism is one. We also saw a kind of apocalyptic race politics around Black Lives Matter where you basically have these beautiful sounding ideas, Greenpeace, Black Lives Matter, uh, LGBT rights, they get hijacked by people that have much darker motivations, motivations for power and for attention that end up being quite destructive. Well, you, you I think, also talk about the Malthusian aspect to it. And, and right. uh, the, the, the problem with the religious analogy is that religion you would at least hope most religions have a positive aspiration or look upwards. But yeah. there's, there's an anti-natalist and anti-human aspect as well to environmentalism tied into it. Yeah. So it's not so positive, I think. There was, uh, there, you know, you have to, so of course, when we look back at environmentalism, there was a very utopian positive component of it. Uh, we actually had a book in the United States called Ecotopia that was sort of about, it was a fantasy, it was a novel about a whole new world that existed. It was powered by renewables. That was still there with people like Michael um, uh, Michael Pollan, and you get in the kind of gardening movement in the United States, also very strong in Britain. Hmm. You get a kind of renewables harmonizing us with the earth. You have that. That's there. But I noticed for sure over the last 10 years, and I think social media is part of it, an increasing darkness to apocalyptic environmentalism without that redemptive quality. I think some of it is that it just travels easier on social media. Negative emotions just travel a mm -hmm. lot easier than the utopianism. 
I think it also had to do with an apocalyptic sense after Trump was elected, Hmm. after Brexit occurred, this reversion towards nationalism and national identity in a variety of countries, I think has created a darker mood among liberal, more left-minded people. Hmm. And I think all those things fed to this really catastrophist view Hmm. of human beings. And what do you think the solution to that is? Something very positive. (laughs) I think it's, it has to, it has to be heartfelt, it has to be smart, it has to have courage, it has to have all those. I think the first thing is it starts with some gratitude towards what's occurred. You know, uh, average human lifespan was 30 years of age, 225 years ago when the Industrial Revolution began. Now, I think most of us can expect to be 80. If we died at 80, we'd be disappointed. <laughs> you know, we'd be mm. like, why can we make it to 100? Our ambitions are so much higher. We've achieved so much. Our freedoms are incredible. We have this incredible prosperity. And environmental trends actually turn out to be going in the direction that we want them to be going. Carbon emissions have been going down basically in every rich country. We have, we, we do have abundant natural gas in the world. We have, we're not shipping it. We're not producing it, providing it to our allies in Europe and mm-hmm. Japan and Asia that we ought to be doing. We have this incredible technology called nuclear power that Mm. allows us to use a tiny amount of nature to produce a lot of Mm. energy. And that means you can have fresh water, you can have fertilizer, you can have abundant food. So there's so much possibility and hope. There was this old idea, this enlightenment idea, that we would use all of our wealth and technology to lift everybody out of poverty, that everybody would get to live free lives, Mm -hmm. that the 2 billion, 3 billion people that still have to use wood and dung as their primary energy would no longer have to. Girls could go to school. Boys would not have to work on the farm. Mm. You know, people that wanted to work on the farm would still be able to, but most people don't need to do that. So for me, that's what gets me excited. That's a world of abundance. Mm. It's a world of prosperity, of freedom. And I think it's more appealing to more people than the darker vision. But I, I do think that the darker vision is meeting certain needs that this enlightenment vision hasn't been able to meet. Mm-hmm. You say in Apocalypse Never, I'll, I'll paraphrase, it's something like that you don't think environmentalists who don't talk about nuclear power are sincere in their environmentalism. And uh, you will then go into the history of why we are intrinsically anti-nuclear. And I, and I was, and you've dispelled some of my assumptions on, on, on the matter, but why, why is nuclear power not more popular? Well, nuclear is so radical. I mean, it's such a radical technology. So it's first and foremost radical in what it does to the relationship between countries. Small country can get a nuclear weapon and never be invaded. I mean, that's basically the guarantee of it. So it's it's nerve wracking. Weapons from from North Korea, nuclear weapons mm-hmm. can hit where we're sitting right now in San Francisco. It's a terrifying idea. Nobody yeah. likes it. So we can't do anything about it. So there's another reason for some of the anxiety of the modern age. Um, but you make a point that there's a, there's a, we, some, for some reason, generally speaking, associate nuclear reactors with nuclear bombs right. when they're nothing like each other. And a nuclear reactor is nowhere near as dangerous, in the, even close to being as dangerous as a nuclear bomb. But we don't make that distinction so easily. That's right. I mean, um, even the weapons that we use are basically, you know, we use... Uh, the manufacturing fertilizer is very similar to manufacturing ammunition for weapons, and yet we don't worry about the fertilizer um, causing wars. But I do think that the association is powerful. It has an independent effect on how we think about nuclear power. But the main attack on nuclear was precisely by the people that we were just talking about, which is that these are folks who don't want a world of abundance. They want to keep other people down in a really important sense. Not always honest about that because that's an it's an ugly view. It's it's taboo view. 
But that is what's motivating that. And you can trace it, as I've done in the book over many decades, this idea that we don't want all these people lifted out of poverty. Mm-hmm. We don't want abundant energy. And so the criticism in that sense of nuclear is the same one of abundant natural gas. It's a fear of a human planet. It's a fear of human mastery. Mm-hmm. It's a desire for control by some by some pretty small people um, who sort of see other people's success coming at a mm. loss to them. It's not everybody that has that view. I don't even think it's most people. But they were then able to trick people's brains into associating the power plants with the weapons. Mm. They then exaggerated the accidents that have occurred. Mm. Fukushima, Chernobyl, uh, Three Mile Island. The accidents actually show how nuclear, how safe nuclear is. But people imagine that it made it, it are symbols of how dangerous it was. The nuclear waste, which is like the main reason nuclear power plants produce zero pollution energy, zero air, air and water pollution. The nuclear waste is the reason for that because all the waste instead of being in the environment is 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 contained. That's turned into a scary sounding thing. And uh-huh. so there was definitely a manipulation going on. It was coming from a bad place and it preyed on particularly those associations that people have with weapons. Well, you just mentioned Chernobyl there. And this is the the part in my book where I put about half a dozen exclamation marks because I'd always assumed, and actually there's one particular fact is that uh, women in Western Europe were, uh, there was about 100 to 200,000 abortions, you you say, because women were made to believe that the radiation from the explosion uh, would affect their uh, yeah. their bodies, and and uh, what? So there is a myth about Chernobyl that I've just assumed. What what what's the truth about Chernobyl? Well, let's start with the accident itself. I I often point out that it would be. I mean, the, the it sounds crazy, but there's with with all these accidents, there's reasons for gratitude. One of them is that this was an accident where the melted uranium fuel was literally outside the plant. Okay, so it's. And it's becoming aerosolized. So it's going into the environment from the, I mean, it's horrible. It's the worst thing you could imagine. The winds are picking it up. And so it's traveling all over the world. Radiation is this, is this one of the benefits of radiation is that it's so easy to measure and track. We can track the amount of radiation in this room right now. We can track radiation in the body. In fact, that's how we know much of how the body works is by attaching tracer isotopes to, to different bodily pathways. So we can see this radiation go everywhere. But we see no increase of any cancer other than thyroid cancer. And thyroid cancers, nobody wants cancer. But if you had to get a cancer, thyroid cancer is not a bad one because it's so easy to treat with a synthetic thyroid substitute called thyroxin. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the reports, and it was what blew, is what basically made me pro-nuclear was reading the reports and interviewing the best scientists. Somewhere like 200 people total will die from Chernobyl over an 80-year period. So that number includes the 50 or so firefighters that put out the fire, Mm -hmm. and then another 150 people over time. It's such a shockingly low number when you consider hundreds of people, hundreds of firefighters die during 9-11 attacks on the buildings. Firefighters die. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but, you know, putting that firefighters in context. And then we know that it had a very small environmental impact, much smaller than people realize. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, when you realize that... It's really like those those these women, these poor women that got abortions. It's more like it's not to say that it, that the exposure doesn't cause any harm, but it's a relative exposure. Mm-hmm. It's like being around people that smoke cigarettes. It's mm-hmm. you know, it's not great. You wouldn't want to like live in a home with a lot of cigarette smoke if you're pregnant. 
but but a low level of that exposure once or twice or mm-hmm. over a period of small period of time is no reason for people to expect it to have a significant damage. And in comparison with the damage caused by fossil fuel energy plants, you argue in the book that it's there's no comparison actually. World Health Organization says somewhere around six million lives are shortened. Again, I use careful language here as opposed to saying killed because it means you know, lives could be shortened by radiation too, but the difference with the radiation from a nuclear accident is that there's so little of it and it's so rare, whereas the fossil fuel and biomass and wood dung burning in the home, there's so much of that. That's how you get to a number like 6 million premature deaths. Uh-huh. Okay. So uh, if we, we've talked about natural gas, it's mentioned a couple of times. Now, uh, uh, I, I would like to ask you, because the UK are trying to buy, Rishi Shunak, our, our Prime Minister, is trying to buy 10 billion cubic metres uh, of, of uh, LNG from you Americans. Yeah. And, uh, Everybody is. Everyone, <laughs> He's not right. the only one, yeah. And we also, uh, our former Prime Minister, uh, Liz Truss, uh, lifted the ban on fracking we had, but Rishi has just put re-imposed down, it. reimposed it. And um, I wondered if you could make the environmentalist uh, argument for fracking. Sure. Yeah, I mean, my basic view with all these fuels is that there's a, a progression from solid fuels to liquid fuels to gas fuels. That's a good progression. You want to go from using things that use a lot of natural resource to very little. So it's really uh, wood and dung are the worst. Coal is a big improvement, both because there's more energy, there's higher energy density, um, but also you're burning the coal outside the home rather than inside the home with mm-hmm. wood and dung. And then from coal to natural gas, right away, carbon emissions are cut in half. But almost everything else goes down by much more than that. I mean, if you think about like something like a heavy metal, which exists like mercury um, in coal, that goes to almost zero when it's natural gas. So it's just much cleaner. That's why we can burn it in our in our kitchens. You couldn't burn wood or, mm-hmm. or coal in your kitchen. It gets too smoky. So then you get to uranium produces no air pollution, no smoke. And then eventually, I think, and a lot of other people think, we'll get to hydrogen gas as a carrier fuel. So that's the right direction. Um, Gas definitely has impacts. You're drilling underground with fracking. What you're doing is you're directional drilling. So you're going into these big rock formations called shale. And then you're cracking it, or we call it, you know, high, uh, using water to fracture it or frack it, and then you pull the gas or oil out of it. Um, significantly better process than coal mining, for example. Mm-hmm. Not as good as uranium mining. Uranium mm-hmm. mining, you just need a much smaller amount of uranium because mm-hmm. it's so much more energy dense. So that's the way I think of it. I've fought to keep nuclear plants open so we don't have to use natural gas. Mm-hmm. But I will strongly believe in natural gas as better than coal. So sometimes people say, are you for natural gas? And I'm, I'm for it when it's replacing coal, wood, and dung. I'm against mm-hmm. it if it's replacing nuclear. Well, you talk about the, the difference between coal, but just, just for listeners who might not be familiar, why, why is coal worse than fracking in, in terms of the damage it does to the environment? Yeah, I mean, we basically got to a place with coal. You don't have to. You can do underground mining, but we basically got to a place, and also in Germany, where you're just ripping whole uh, tops of landscapes apart and you're just grinding up. You know, they've had to, I think they took down a church in Germany. They've gone under forests. Hmm. You're taking, we call it mountaintop removal in the United States. So, and it just like it sounds, you're just moving a lot more earth, a lot more nature. You're hammering rivers, get clogged up with the sentiment. There's all sorts of coal ash that has to get stored outside. So uh, the difference is with oil and gas, you're just you're pulling the oil and gas out of the earth and you're not you're, you are having some above ground impact, but nothing 
close to coal. And then of course, wood is worse because you're actually having to log entire forests. So every step of that way, you're going from wood to coal, to petroleum, to oil is environmental progress. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the things you you write about very eloquently in, in your book, but there's some other rather controversial or certainly some things that blew my little mind um, in your book, uh, including uh, that uh, uh, that you were pro-fast fashion. Yes. Um, which uh, I'm... Again, when I can afford it. I actually can't afford fast fashion. But yeah. <laughs> what do you mean by that? When I buy, fa- when I buy, when I buy fashion, it's mm-hmm. fast fashion. <laughs> right. I just don't buy a lot of clothes, but yeah. But the, you make the case that actually it's a good thing. Fast fashion is a good thing for our humanity. Yeah, that's right. So the so people say, you know, what environmental problems do you worry the most about? Um, I believe climate change is real. I do think we should do something about it. I do worry about it. But for me, the two biggest environmental problems by far are forest destruction and overfishing. We eat too many fish. Uh, they have different solutions. But on the forests, the biggest pressure on forests is from small farmers who need land to farm, pushing up against the forest frontier. And we see that particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, in the book, I spent a lot of time in the Congo and other parts of that region talking about the conflict between small farmers and elephants and gorillas and other animal species that are endangered. Brazil is a slightly different dynamic. In the Amazon, it's more big soy farmers putting pressure on forests, but you also have some of the small farmers too. What are your problems with the forest? Because another one of the controversial to me uh, uh, arguments you make is that the Amazon rainforest is not not the lungs of the world as we're so often told, because actually... It, the amount of oxygen it produces is kind of self-contained and not a net contributor to the environment. So what do you yeah. mean when you say uh, that you're worried about the deforestation? Yeah, there. Um, well, so let me, let's unpack Amazon for a minute. Okay. My argument on the Amazon is that the best farmland and also the farmland that takes the pressure off the rainforest is actually savanna, which is... Um, uh, you know, above and basically below the rainforest. And so you, you'd rather use um, those savanna areas than the rainforest. There's less biodiversity, they're better for farming. And also I'm arguing for concentrating agriculture rather than fragmenting the forest, which is bad for animal species. So I love forests just in the same way I love those Vermeers and Van Goghs. They're beautiful, they're home to endangered species. I think they're, uh, uh, they are an international treasure, but Brazilians also need to grow a lot of food to feed themselves and to grow economically, and that's why they need soy. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's alarmism that's really quite colonialist and prejudiced and unaware that the United States and Europe, for example, that we logged our forests and now we're trying to get the Brazilians to stop mm. unfairly. But then there is an argument that also, well, we do wanna protect those forests, but let's then focus farming somewhere else. In Africa, in order to produce more food on less land, and this is true everywhere, but certainly in Africa, what you need is to have jobs in the city. And the jobs in the city, the obvious place for jobs in sub-Saharan Africa would be making t-shirts, making tennis shoes. That's where poor countries start. So Ethiopia, when it starts manufacturing, it started fast fashion. It started those little factories in the city. Those would then allow farmers to buy fertilizer and tractors, produce more food on less land to be able to provide more food for people that are no longer working on the farm. But it also means you needed less land and it took the pressure off of the forests. So that's the, it's quite a steeplechase, but basically that's the argument for factories and industrialization is that it reduces the pressure on rainforests. Does the waste caused by fast fashion not concern you? 
Not much, in the sense that if you consider it's cotton and wool, and wool are two of the biggest, or synthetics. I mean, synthetics are made from petroleum byproducts. Um, cotton is grown, and it's not great cotton. It requires a lot of water. Now, we know how to produce water as well. Um, certainly, you can use nuclear plants. You can desalinate. You can have uh, hydroelectric dams. Um, in general, the biggest use of the land by humans is to make meat. And so when you're asking about sheer like environmental impact on landscapes, for me, it's reducing the amount of land that you're using for meat. And we know how to do that. That's just produce, that's having more heads of cattle or heads of pig and chicken on less land. And then in terms of growing crops like cotton, it's just technological innovation, better seeds, better fertilizer, better irrigation. Mm -hmm. So now for another, what, so another thing that blew my mind was the case against renewable energy that you make, against solar panels and against uh, wind and and I think I was pretty much persuaded by it. But would you mind uh, telling listeners the environmentalist case against sure wind turbines and solar panels? Yeah, you know, I should say it's not a um, it's not a spiritual case in the sense that we have solar panels in my backyard. They're a great niche technology, and so so and that's I think what solar panels have always been meant to be is as a niche technology. The problem is when you start to try to get a lot of electricity from them. So solar requires somewhere between three and 600 times more land to then to generate the same amount of electricity from natural gas or a nuclear plant. That's because sunlight is energy dilute. A little bit of sunlight can fall on my on, on us and it feels good. A little bit of, you stand next to a nuclear uh, reactor and you'll die. That's just an energy density issue. So paradoxically, or maybe not paradoxically, you want heavy energy density in your power plants you know, protected by machinery and by good care, because that means that you don't have to use as much natural environment. That's why I sort of joke the same thing that makes nuclear bombs so dangerous is what makes it so good for the environment, which is that it's just high energy density. So the picture here is basically a picture of wanting to move from matter intensive fuels, wood and dung and coal, to energy dense fuels like uranium. Sunlight is the fuel or the flow that is powering those solar panels. Making the solar panels requires huge amounts of resource as well, about 300 times more waste coming from solar mm. panels, just the used solar panels, than the high-level nuclear waste. So the picture of renewables, and then, and then there's the unreliability of them that makes electricity very expensive. It means you have to have a backup power plants always ready to turn on when the sun's not shining and it's not blowing. So renewables end up being quite bad for the environment. And I think there's some real questions now even about how much carbon emissions they create, how much pollution they create. And the nuclear, manufacturing of the, the technology itself. The refining of the materials, the minerals. I mean, it's a shocking five to 10 times more materials. So that's more mining. And, you know, again, agriculture is the big devastating, you know, human activity on landscape. So if you can shrink food, that's great. But you don't want to increase the amount of mining Anything, if you're looking at it, basically the long-term trend is towards doing more with less. That's, that's why we haven't had bigger environmental impacts despite having all these people. So anytime you're having to do less with more, you know, you're having to use more resource for less energy, you're going in the wrong direction. I think you even make the case that more people have died from wind just in the maintenance of wind turbines than from, let's say, nuclear but perhaps maybe I'm actually. not sure if we kept that in there or not. I think we may have taken out the wind. The wind comparisons, the wind deaths became very difficult to attribute. Mm -hmm. So we, I'm not sure if the deaths, the wind deaths made it into the book or not. But if it, not. if it did, it's, um, 
It's the the bottom line is that the deaths from nuclear so, uh, deaths from nuclear and wind were both so low that we just didn't make a big deal of it. And they don't. And and the let's say a solar panel it doesn't last that long anyway, does it? Twenty thirty years. Yeah, I mean it's supposed to go twenty thirty years, but they've been taking them down in fifteen years because they they are able to produce newer ones for so much cheaper. Mm. Um, uh, there, another thing that kind of smashed my previous assumptions was. Uh, that bioplastics were worse than um, fossil plastics because bioplastics, yes. uh, the decomposition of bioplastics would cause more pollution than uh, fossil plastics that we put to landfills anyway. Yeah, I mean, part of this is not surprising in the sense that most people might remember that we used to use elephant tusks, ivory to make piano keys and billiard balls. So replacing ivory mm. with fossil fuel plastics, which is a, a, a byproduct of the petrochemical industry, you know, prevented us from having to, we, they still hunt elephants, particularly for the Chinese who wanted the ivory, although that's going away too. But also I discovered that the sea turtle shells were being used for jewelry, for all sorts of exotic uh, products in the 19th century. Those got replaced by petroleum-based uh, fuels. But then even, yeah, corn-based, uh, sugar-based biofuels, uh, the worst is, you know, I'm sorry, bioplastics, bioplastics and biofuels have the same problems, which is that they require using a lot of land. Most people now know that palm oil was being was destroying rainforests in Southeast Asia and hurting the habitat of orangutans. But it's a similar dynamic with all bioplastics is that you have to grow crops and those crops end up using more land, creating more pollution and also having a worse impact when they broke down. The picture that people had is that if you use bioplastics, then they'll break down faster, they'll compost faster, and that turned out not to be true. Because in order to make these products, you know, if you think of your forks or your bioplastic cups or whatever, they have to make them in such a way that they don't just decompose so easily. So mm. turns out, you know, we have a really good solution, which is that we have a, in the United States, we use landfills, and in Europe, they mostly incinerate. There were problems with incineration decades ago, but they burn really hot now, and so they break up the dioxin molecules. Those are great solutions for our waste uh we should every time we try to recycle plastics that's when you end up getting plastic waste in the rivers and in the oceans yeah you've you've written about this a bit and i'm not sure i fully understand but i was discouraged by the amount of effort i put into recycling over the last 10 years dividing all my recycling yeah. and reading reading your your work uh, i've got the impression very little of that actually ends up being recycled and it was a lot of work in vain am, am i wrong no, and at this point, you know, uh, I don't agree with Greenpeace on much, but on this issue, it appears Greenpeace is arriving where we've arrived, which is that plastics are definitely not being recycled, like at least 90% or more are not being recycled. And the reason is, is that it's just not cost effective. The materials that you get out of recycling, it cost more than getting the raw materials because the raw materials are this fossil fuel byproduct from oil and gas production. So... Yeah, it turns out that the attempts to recycle it, what happens is the recyclers end up shipping the plastic to poor countries that don't have waste disposal systems, and then it ends up making its way into rivers and oceans. So we ended up creating this giant ocean plastic waste problem by trying to recycle our plastic waste, which is very ironic, mm -hmm. as you might, in several ways, you know, the more you think about it. So, so yeah, it's best for them to go in the garbage um, or, you know, or in the incinerator, uh, I think... There's been some debate on Twitter in the last few weeks about this. I still think it's uh, cost-effective to recycle your plastic, your tin cans, your aluminum cans, your glass, 
There's some people who disagree around some things like the paper, but generally those are the things you, you should be able to recycle. It's just that plastic, because of the chemical nature of it, the lightweight part of it, and the fact that, that there's you already have a byproduct to make it, it's just not worth recycling. That's why it ends up not going into, it, why it ends up not being recycled. Okay, I don't fully understand what happens then with the incineration and the landfill stuff. Why, why is that okay? Because are they self-contained? Is, is there not yeah. leakage or, yeah? Nope, the new landfills are sealed really well. They put these good sealants on them. We also uh, pull the gases off and we burn the gases as methane to provide a little bit of electricity. It's certainly better than it going up into the air because methane is a potent greenhouse gas if it's not you know broken apart through combustion, which is what those special you know, land, you know, basically waste to energy projects do. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's not, it just doesn't take up that much land. I mean, it seems like we would be taking it, like using up all of the earth for landfill space because there were so many of us producing garbage, but it's just not a problem. And then we end up building parks and golf courses over them. Uh, Europe doesn't have as much land. That's why Europe incinerates. Uh, Japan incinerates. They have a big incinerator right there in the middle of Tokyo uh, or several probably. And they just burn really hot now. And so you do get a little bit of carbon dioxide, but nothing compared to energy production. And then you don't, what's important is that you don't get dioxin, which is a toxic uh, pollutant. And it's just simply because it it breaks apart the toxin molecule because the heat is so high now. Okay. So uh, as we're talking, world leaders right now are in Egypt for COP27, the United Nations Climate Change Conference. Does that fill you with hope that the world leaders are meeting? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, in fact, there was like a few, I've been doing, working on climate change for, you know, almost a quarter century. That's how long I've been working on it uh, since my mid twenties. I'm 51 now. So I, there was a period there where I just wouldn't even talk about it. Like people would ask, like reporters would be like, would you comment on the talks? And I'd be like, no, because there's like no point. They'd have no impact. There's, these are, you know, someone, a New York Times reporter asked recently, he's like, why don't they just do them by Zoom? They take, you know, it's like 30,000 people. It's all this energy. Of course, every time they have them, there's all these stories about all the private jets that fly and arrive there and the hypocrisy of it. Um, but I kind of was joking, you know, why why don't we do the Hajj over Zoom? You know, why don't you have a pilgrimage, you know, over Zoom? And the reason it's a pilgrimage, it's a religious event. It's not, it shouldn't be understood as an event that will decide how nations, what, how they use energy or how they use food. That's the conceit of the people who attend those meetings. But these are people often who are activists or politicians. These are people that don't really understand how electrical grids work or energy systems work. They go there and they're kind of, and the journalists are there. They also don't understand this. The activists are there. They have very little to do with like real world decision making. So that's why I kind of go, it's just a festival of narcissism. There's no point in even talking about it. It's more interesting at the cultural level. You know, it's more interesting that it seems like it's also enacting a fantasy of rich countries controlling poor countries. Mm. So you'll see this, the way it works is that they'll be like, we'll pay you because we feel guilty for having caused climate change that you know we rich countries cause you didn't so we'll pay you and you in 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 exchange will agree not to use fossil fuels mm. well a country that decides not to use fossil fuels 90% of them means they're deciding not they're, they're not going to grow economically and this ties back to the earlier in the conversation that they're going to get left behind yeah i mean some of them can use hydroelectric dams many poor countries start with hydroelectric dams but they all need petroleum to move trucks around and transport farm products to the cities and 
So the idea that you would get poor countries not to use fossil fuels is imperialistic. It's the reverse of the earlier imperialism. The earlier imperialism would build the highways so you can pull the materials out of the country. That kind of imperialism, China is still pursuing. Russia is still pursuing. But now Europe and most, much of the rest of, the, of, of North America, Asia is slightly different, has said, no, we want to pay you not to develop. And so you're going to stick with renewables and so you saw things like Germany last year gave South, uh, gave South Africa $800 million to agree not to burn coal. Well, in the time since that event, that was the Scotland climate talks last year, same time as this year. Since then, Germany's imports of coal from South Africa increased eightfold. So you're just, it's, it's not just hypocrisy, it's imperialist and it's Malthusian in that it's saying, you go ahead and skip economic development for our sins against nature. Wow. Is there any sense that anyone at COP27 or is any of the leaders getting the conversation right? Is there anyone that you, you do think is, understands the problems as you understand them? Well, they actually, many of them understand it and they just end up kind of going through, they, 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 end, up, they end up reading from the script, um, even politicians that know that they have to go back to Germany or France and find ways to go produce more oil and gas. I mean, what you've been seeing over the last several months, even before Russia invaded Ukraine in, in late February, is world leaders going to Canada, going to the United States, going to Qatar, going to Australia, and begging for more natural gas. Yeah. That's the main event. So then you kind of go, oh, well, forget all that. Now we're going to go to this climate conference and talk about how we're not going to use fossil fuels. Is that is that because they're answerable to uh, their, uh, to demo democratic countries, i.e. the people who are en masse misguided? Or if, is there something, is there an elite cabal of people with nefarious aims, as you suggested that already a little bit, there's some with nefarious aims wanting to keep some countries down. What's, what, why has it come to this point? Yeah, I mean, the answer is yes, of course, on both. There's, there's, a, <laughs> there's, a, there's a domestic constituency, a third let's say, of the electorates in every developed economy that feel that you should you should prioritize climate change over cheap energy, over economic growth. We see that in the polls here, we see it in Europe. And so that and that that's a disproportionate part of center left parties across the Western world. So of course they, you know, Macron and and, and Rushi Sunak is just a much more left leaning electorate in Britain. Um, but, he, but Biden and, and German leaders, I mean, they all go and they all say that at the conference, but then they go back home and they also have to rush around the world to get enough fossil fuels. So it's just a by, by conceptual, like it's just doing two things at once for them. Is there an elite cabal? Well, of course, it's it meets at Davos every every year. It's called the World Economic Forum. Um, you know, whenever you talk about it, people say, oh, it sounds like you're talking about a conspiracy theory. My response is always, I wish it were a conspiracy because that would make it quiet. Mm. Instead, it's very loud. <laughs> the global elites are very loud about what they want. They talk about it all the time. The Great Reset was not something hidden. It was a very well-publicized proposal. Books about it. Yeah, yeah they wrote books expensive. about yeah. it. So, and it is what it is. They just have been saying the same thing for 50 years. I mean, the Great Reset gives it some more frisson. You know, it gives it some more excitement. But it's Malthus. It's Malthusianism. It's this idea that we should all rely on renewables spoken by people that just just arrived a few hours ago from aspen on my private jet you know so so yeah it's all it is what it looks like does that not then fill you a little bit with despair if these are the people in charge and they're so misguided on the topic as as you understand it how can we disrupt that if if they're so wrong 
Definitely, there's times where my work feel, feels futile. <laughs> I guess that that's what you mean by despair. You know, it's also like compared to what? You know, compared to, you know, the wars between Catholics and Protestants in Europe, compared to the great days of imperialism, of European imperialism, compared to, you know, uh, the, you know, the interwar period. I mean, it's just, uh, we're the, you know, I'm just started, I don't, I realized I didn't know anything about Napoleon. So I started reading this biography of Napoleon and I'm like, what? Which, uh, which one? It's, uh, I can't, it's the single, it's a single volume. Andrew, Andrew Roberts? Might be. Napoleon um, the Great? No. Yeah. It's a single volume yeah. biography. I'm sorry, I don't remember the, the sure, author. Sure. I'm never, I'm terrible about that. Um, but it's like a nightmare from beginning to end. And he's a psychopath. You know, he's All like right. a no, total. No, it's not Roberts. Roberts loves him. But, oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, there's something. But he killed a lot of people, Napoleon. I think oh, there's at least a million. Remorselessly, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, and it's a, uh, you know, that was whatever, you know, that was, like, you know, late 18. So kind of compared to what, you know, as far mm-hmm. as fantasies go, there have been worse ones. There's been worse delusions. I would definitely worry about sub-Saharan Africa. I worry about South Asia. These are places that do need more energy. Pakistan just announced that it's going to have, you know, gas, you know, mandatory gas, you know, shortages and rationing this winter. Because the Europeans have bid the price of natural gas up so much, the Pakistanis can't compete with them. So I worry about that. It's not. It's not great. I guess the worry. The, the worry would more be that if we really are in a climate crisis, which maybe you'd ask against. Yeah. Then and the people in charge of dealing with it are so off the mark, then we're not going to get anywhere to closer to resolving that issue. Well, yeah, I mean, it's true. You know, I will say this energy crisis has been very good in terms of the decisions it's inspired some of the leaders to make. Uh, you know, there's a setback with Sunak. I do think that Britain needs to produce more of its own gas, so it's not so dependent on the rest of the world, including on us. But France has decided to go more nuclear plants. Japan and South Korea, after being anti-nuclear since Fukushima a decade ago, is now are now moving back towards nuclear. I was just in Korea, and nuclear is mainstream. Among liberals mm. on Twitter, nuclear is remarkably mainstream, much more mainstream than when I started working on this in earnest 10 years ago. So so you see things and there's some of these things I look at and I go, it's headed in the right direction. Other things I go, there's a lot of crazy there still. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely, I do think that countries are going to start to see the need for more nuclear and gas. Mm. I, it's annoying how long it takes people to get to the most, you know, obvious conclusion in my view that those are the two technologies that ought to be emphasized but but yeah so my despair is uh you know i would say uh marked with some moments of joy as well uh well my last question on environmentalism before i want to move on and sure. ask about your san francisco book is uh we both saw the greta thunberg memorial outside <laughs> <No> memorial uh, <laughs> no, memorial <she's> alive uh, <laughs> <laughs> excuse me uh, uh, the um, uh, mural, I should yes. say, um, uh, matron saint of uh, eco anxiety. Maybe you said that, yeah. or are you a fan? <laughs> well, I'm very interested. You know, Greta's very interesting for a lot of different reasons. You know, I think I've been critical of her, as you might imagine. I'm I'm interested in sort of why uh, a civilized society chooses a girl as its hero. And you're sort, you know, she had authentic appeal. She went viral on social media. She was certainly packaged well by her handlers. But I think one of the obvious reasons is that she could then be above criticism. And that's, that's what part of this movement wanted, is it wanted to make climate change and renewables 
above criticism. It's really in there. And I know from personal experience, it's very taboo to suggest that climate change is not the end of the world and that we're actually adapting to it pretty well. And we're going to keep, we've been reducing emissions. We're going to keep reducing emissions and that renewables aren't going to be the main event by any means. And that we're not going to return to a a pre-industrial world. We're not going to go back to Elizabeth in England, by the way, I think is sort of the archetype that even Americans have in their minds, you know, the Renaissance fair and the music and, we miss that. You know, there's something nostalgic and beautiful about that where we made our own music, you know, where we where we created our, we were creators in our own communities. We produced our own food and energy and music and cultural life. And I think there's nostalgia for that with understandable reasons. But I think that's what the climate discourse, the apocalyptic discourse is all wrapped up in. So they but what concerns me about Greta, you know, she's obviously as she says, she had an anxiety disorder and was depressed she also suffered, I believe she said, from OCD. You can see some of that. I see in some of the OCD, I see it a lot around the concern on plastic waste. It's almost obsessive in the kind of, you know, the sorting. You know, OCD is often manifested by, by purifying and separating things, certainly being clean, but also, you know, segregating and separating and recycling had a lot to do with that. But the people around her knew she had an anxiety disorder. You know, when she got up in front of the United Nations, she was you know, throwing a temper tantrum, you know, and saying things that you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to kind of be like, that doesn't sound, mm. you know, saying things like, how dare you? And you've stolen my childhood. Well, I mean, who's she talking to there? Is she really talking to United Nations delegates? Is she talking to her parents? I mean, what are we, we're seeing a kind of psychodrama unfold publicly. And anybody who said something, who said, well, I don't think that's appropriate for, a, a, frankly, an upper middle class Swedish girl to be acting like the world owes her something. That's entitlement. That's grandiosity. That's a kind of narcissism. You know, anybody who would say that then was, oh, well, you're picking on a girl or something. So it became very, um, very much part of the woke phenomenon, too, you know, which was this idea that, you know, when I first started working on climate change, you know, you were, you were worried about victims in, other, in poor countries, mostly. You were, well, people in Africa are going to have a harder time adapting. That was the concern. Well, now, and this segues to the, you know, the latest protest, it's, I don't have a future. You're destroying my life. This is about me, 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 me. And I can't help but read that as, you know, a sign of a, of a culture of narcissism and the rising narcissism that everyone has been talking about as it relates to social media. Mm. Well, and on a recent Substack uh, piece, you, you were even more damning than that, which was that uh, you, you, you think that she's more driven by hatred of capitalism than love from the environment. Well, and she said so. I mean, so this came out, she gave us, she's got a book coming out in the spring. She gave a speech in Britain and she got up and said, you know, this is not, you know, just about climate change. This is about capitalism. She was actually making a great reset argument. You know, she was saying... We should not go back to normal, you know, after COVID. So we don't want to go back to normal life. We want to go back. We want to tear down capitalism. And that's because capitalism, you know, is slavery, the destruction of indigenous people. And, you know, and I pointed out in my I wrote two pieces on it. the first piece I point out, you know, what we call industrial capitalism certainly has had some brutal parts of it. But it also, you know, liberated humans from drudgery. And, you know, like I mentioned, you know, life expectancy from 30 to 70 years and women and girls are not the property of their fathers and husbands. These are all things that 
might, you know, you might want to take into consideration when you're condemning capitalism. The other thing you might want to consider is that we haven't had a great track record with other forms of economic organization. The two big competitors being feudalism and capitalism, which have a lot more in common than people imagine. They're both involved in in trying to control economic life. You know, we came to this agreement out of Europe, out of the Protestant Catholic Wars. It was Hobbes and these other thinkers in that period of, you know, 16th, 15th, uh, 16th, 17th centuries saying, you know, humans are very aggressive and greedy. So why don't we let them do that in this realm of the economy? We'll call it, you know, that'll be what Marx eventually called capitalism. We're going to let them have that in the economy. And then we're going to allow this other space, you know, the public space, the government to protect people and provide people with their needs. But we're going to actually allow these two very different kinds of human activities to exist side by side hasn't been perfect but as far as i can tell it's had much better outcomes than the alternative mm-hmm. so can i ask you about san francisco yeah uh, i found it to be a very uh, empathetic book and um uh, amongst other things dealing with the homelessness here in san francisco and one of the misdiagnoses probably and again assumption that i'm partly i partly made myself is that people who are homeless it's often because uh you know their hard luck have had a tough time in their lives but actually the real problem is a a crisis of um uh mental health and a crisis of addiction and that those two are the real root causes of of the the problem problem which here you just you walk three yards and you, you're faced with it. It's it's really shocking here more than anywhere, and, and Los Angeles as well is it's similar. Um, and you argue that um, uh, progressive policy, as opposed to conservative policy, is making things work. Is is that demonstrably true that progressive policy here in America, let's say, is uh, hurting the homeless more than it's helping? Sure. And I should say, too, the people we call homeless, they are down on their luck, but it's not a simple that they're unemployed. And so I point out that, you know, people that often lose their job or they can't afford the rent in San Francisco, they do what millions of people in California have done, which is that they move. They move out of state. They go to Texas. This is what's been happening here. California's become a wealthier state because we haven't built enough housing to retain the working class and the middle class. So those folks move when they can't afford it. They don't go live on the most dangerous sidewalks in the world. These are folks who are there overwhelmingly because of addiction. They need all their resources. They, they use all their resources to support their drug habits. Many of them suffer serious mental illness, but it's even those folks tend to have a serious problem with substance use disorder. So it's a psychiatric disorder that leads people to make really bad decisions like, you know, living on the streets. Um, You know, the men engage in theft to maintain their habits. The women engage in sex work. Some of the men engage in sex work. It's terrible life. And so we now know from both cohort studies that follow the sheltered homeless and the unsheltered over time, And we also know by comparing Los Angeles to New York, because Los Angeles has so many more unsheltered homeless people that live outside, that living outside as an unsheltered homeless uh, leads you three times more likely to die than if you're indoors. And it's everything from car accidents, homicides, drug overdoses. You're safer indoors. So then what's the difference between sheltered and unsheltered? Sheltered 
Unsheltered, you're just outdoors. Yeah, the people and you see on the street. Sheltered is at a tent, or no? Is that sheltered is in, indoors okay, at a okay. proper shelter. So unsheltered would be a, a tent, and yes. you're three times more likely to die. Wow. That's right. Yeah, uh, and so so you have to bring people inside. Mm. Um, the conditions can be bad inside. We should make shelter, you know, clean, safe. You know, uh, it should be a proper shelter. We have a moral obligation for that. We have a legal obligation for that. But it's better than being outside. I mean, outside is just dangerous. So that's kind of the argument. Then you have to ask yourself, well, why are we leaving people outside? You know, what is going on? What is the justification for letting people stay outside? And that was part of why why I wanted to write San Francisco. I mean, part of it was to kind of lay out, look, these aren't. This is not just people that can't afford the rent and have are, everything's fine, other than just being short a few bucks. That was the first part to point out that's not true. And then the other was sort of why, given, you know, and I look at places like, I mean, I'm obsessed with the Netherlands and a lot of different reasons, but. When I am a practical person, so when I kind of go, what works? It's not actually that I think Netherlands is conservative. I wouldn't even call their approach to homelessness, to addiction, mental illness, homelessness as conservative. I don't think they consider themselves conservative. I think if anything, they would call themselves liberal mm-hmm. and compassionate. But they've just done a set of things, and so part of me asks, why don't we just do the same things the Dutch have done to take care of their people? Why, what's getting in the way of it? And what have the Dutch done? The Dutch, I mean, have said everybody needs to come inside. Mm. I did shadow a social worker where we he let someone stay outside for the night rather than making them come inside. But then the next night he said you had to come inside. And I think if I hadn't been there, he might have made him go inside that night. <laughs> um, you know, and I say to him, well, you know, do you have a shelter bed for him? Of course. You know, well, what if he needs a, a bed in a psychiatric hospital or a, in the psych ward of a hospital? Do you have that for him? Yes. Mm. You know. What about drug rehabilitation? What if he needs drug rehabilitation? We have that. So the first thing is they have these facilities. And then the second is that they... Which the Americans don't. Which we don't. Mm-hmm. Which we don't. Um, we have some, but we don't have enough. And then the other part of it is then they have the legal power to get people inside. You know, it's similar to what I think we ought to do, which is that I don't think you should be made to go into the shelter, but you can't sleep outside. So... You can try to stay with a friend or family. You can go out of state. You can whatever. You don't have, I mean, you you know, but you, you can't be on the sidewalk. It's not safe for you. It's not safe for anybody else. So that is also, those are the two big changes. It's basically, you need the, you need the beds, whether it's in a shelter, rehab or hospital. And you also need the legal authority to require people to get off the street. And it's that combination of social help but also the legal and I, I, you emphasize punishment a little bit more in, in the book as, as I understood it there needs to be uh, incentive or stricter uh, policing I suppose yeah I mean the way I like to think of it is that there need to be consequences mm. for behaviors that are destructive that are self-destructive destructive to the society if you don't have consequences for those then you'll have more of those behaviors you know you are what you allow and so we allow destructive behaviors in San Francisco uh, that are unhealthy and unpleasant and dangerous for ideological reasons, certainly not for lack of money because we're rich. In fact, part of the, the, the spending of money on things that encourage those behaviors is why we have more of those problems here. But punishment's a funny word. I, 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 there, Nietzsche has a great aphorism, which is beware all those in whom the will to punish is strong. I've never felt, I don't feel a punishing, uh, like, like I don't have a, any kind of desire to punish people in that sense. 
But I do think when you don't have consequences for doing the kinds of activities... Well, it's the drug specifically, just to be not sleeping rough that you're, I understood you encouraging punishment for, but when there's drug dealing or, or possession of drugs, I suppose, or maybe yes. that's wrong, that there should be repercussions for that. Yeah, well, possession is tricky. I think if you're, I, you know, I always say I'm a liberal in my compassion for the vulnerable. I'm a libertarian in my love of freedom. I'm a conservative in that I think you need civilization to protect both of them. If you are using drugs in the privacy of your own apartment or hotel room, I don't think that that should be a priority for law enforcement. If you're using them outside on the sidewalk, if you're selling them, if you're defecating in public, if you're doing, if you're breaking laws in public, then I think then, and it's clear that it's driven by addiction as evaluated by a specialist or a counselor or a therapist or somebody and then advising the judge, then it seems to me the judge is appropriate to say, look, you can go to jail for your crimes or you can go into rehab. Mm. And what we've done in San Francisco is we've taken away the stick. We've taken away the threat of jail and said, would you like rehab? Most addicts say, no, I'm perfectly fine. My life is awesome right now. I just need to smoke some, some fentanyl in the next couple hours mm. and I'll be super good those folks then don't get the care, they don't get the treatment they need because they're having a psychiatric disorder. Because the policy has been to give money and shelter so that they have the shelter and they have more money to buy drugs. Is that correct? Yeah, it's as shocking as it sounds. I mean, San Francisco is a little unusual in this than other progressive cities, but basically, yeah, you get six to $700 in cash if you claim poverty, even if you're from out of town. And then you can live on the street and use your drugs and, and be left alone for the most part. That's, that's how you get a lot of people on the street. So that's come from a very empathetic point. That's like if, you, if you think the problem is homelessness, that seems like a solution, but it's, that's the misdiagnosis right there. It hasn't... Yeah, and there's been efforts to tighten it up. You know, there was a, a, a policy that said, look, you, can, um, you can't have the apartment and cash, mm -hmm. so you can get a free apartment unit but then you can't get the free cash. So then a lot of people will say, well, I'll take the cash and I don't want the apartment unit. And then there'd be people that would say, well, why are we, you know, a lot of people, including doctors saying, it's crazy to give addicts cash, like it's crazy. But the argument that it's cruel to not give poor people cash basically won out over the argument that it was cruel to give them cash. What, what do you think uh, America or this region is lacking in the mental health care? Well, the main issue, I think, well, there's several issues. The first is that if you don't have any coercion, if you don't have any requirement that people accept the treatment as an alternative to incarceration, then people won't take the treatment. That's mm -hmm. just something that everybody knows around the world. They know it in Britain, they know it in Netherlands, they know it in Japan. So that's the first part. You have to have consequence. But the other issue is um, we don't have the centralized kind of care that exists in most developed economies. In Britain, you have the National Health Service. In Canada, they have a single payer system where it's much easier to deliver that care in, in an efficient way. So for example, if you need drug treatment and you're arrested in San Francisco, it's too much to ask San Francisco to be able to provide drug treatment for every addict who comes here. 20,000 homeless addicts basically come to San Francisco every year. I don't know that they're all addicts. 20,000 homeless people come into city every year. About 8,000 at any given time here. Passing through? Are they, are they moving Passing, onwards? Well, yeah, there's about 8,000 8 to 10,000 total homeless in the city at any given time. 20,000 that come through the year. Come through the year. So there's a significant amount of turnover. A lot of people die. Um, a lot of people move out of town. Um, some people finally get housed. Some people quit doing drugs. But it's a pretty significant churn. San Francisco can't provide 
care for everybody um, that comes through. So there needs to be, I think, care centralized at the state level that is then also uh, supported financially by the rest of the country because people come here from Texas and Ohio and all mm. sorts of part of the country to maintain, in part to maintain their addictions. Mm. Well, Michael, uh, Michael Schellenberger, thank you so much for your time. Thanks I, for I having me. I highly recommend your two books to uh, listeners. I'm sure they'll enjoy it as much as I did, um, them as much as I did, um, uh, but it's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much for having me, I appreciate it.